on Power Talk AM 1460 and FM 101.1. Streaming worldwide on iHeartRadio. Jan Price talks to the movers and shakers in the film business. The Jan Price Show. You're listening to The Jan Price Show, and today my guest is award-winning director-producer Jacqueline Olive, and we, we, we will be talking about her brand-new documentary that's incredibly moving called Always in Season. Thank you for being on the show, Jacqueline. Hi, Jan. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're welcome. I, I have to just tell you that this documentary just opened your eyes, and it was riveting and very uh, moving and frustrating and makes you angry and all kinds of emotions. So, uh, <laughs> you know, it and that's what a movie should do and a good documentary yeah. should do for sure that's just so our audience knows what this film is about do you want to just give a little bit of the background of the movie yeah absolutely I spent 10 years um, filming in communities where lynchings happened with relatives of the perpetrators and the victims and other folks who were looking on a very grassroots level at justice and reconciliation and so Always in Season follows um, uh, a couple of communities one of which is in Monroe, Georgia I'm right outside of Atlanta where a group of amateurs get together and annually reenact a quadruple lynching that happened there in 1946 and they do that to make sure that the victims, the Malcolms and the Dorseys are never forgotten and um, some people believe that there are folks still living um, who were involved in that lynching and they want to bring them to justice and so the film very much um, threads the racial terrorism of the past um, to today with the story of a 17 year old named Lennon Lacey who was found hanging from a swing set in Blatonboro, North Carolina in 2014. And his mother, Claudia Lacey, believes that he was lynched. And we follow Claudia on her journey to find justice. It's a fascinating journey. And, and I don't want to give anything away in the film at all. I do have, because well, there's so many things to, to, to uh, touch on here. Uh, the reenactment, I mean, that was just, I mean, you open with that. So you're, you know, you have no idea in the beginning that it is a reenactment. Maybe I shouldn't have said that. But um, that was just a, a, was amazing to me and I but I have a question for me as a as a woman a white woman um, I'm wondering if reenacting this they do it every year don't they they have the reenactment they do they do they've been doing it since 2005 and they they um, dramatize the events of that lynching on the anniversary of the couple's death in late July okay so my question is I wondered with with having that being reenacted is that helping to heal or is it just keep bringing up up, um, how everyone felt and making more divisiveness rather than healing. And you'll know better than I do about that. And so I was just curious whether which way that goes or does it go both ways for people? It's a good question. It, it, it depends on who you're asking. There are um, large parts of the community um, that believe that the reenactments are too violently graphic, um, that they divide the community, like you said, that they uh, cause divisions in a community, that, a community that they see as racially harmonious. Um, and, and you know, there's some dispute about the details um, that the, the reenactors portray um, around that lynching. And, and then there are people who understand that it is part of the story of uh, Black folks there in Monroe, that um, the family members uh, have a right to get the story out as they know it, whether the details were documented or not. Um, and I really see the reenactments as, uh, um, as not perfect, but it's a very organic um, effort at telling the truth about this history that often was not documented. One of the founders of the reenact- reenactment, Bobby Howard, spent years um, doing oral histories in that community. He's from um, Social Circle, which is just adjacent to Monroe, and um, and filmed with family members of the victims over years and found out details.
details of the lynching that were never documented. And it isn't um, unusual. Uh, reporters would write for people not to talk about a lynching. Um, and they certainly didn't necessarily have the incentive to write about um, horrific details of the violence, um, as is the case with district attorneys who showed up on the scene and medical examiners and so on. And how has the, how has the white community reacted to this reenactment well, every year? So the, the community in general, there, it, there isn't a, um, it, 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 it's um, not accurate to generalize. Um, the community in general, as is most of the country, really encouraged not to look at this racial history, uh, this history of racial violence. And it's the case in Monroe as well. It was the case actually in almost every, every city where I filmed around the country. Um, the eight or nine cities that I spent eight years filming in um, where lynchings happen is that um, most people, even when there's work on the ground, like the reenactments, even when people are uh, doing work over time to bring out the history, most people don't know about lynchings in the area. And when they do hear about it, um, they are um, they're inclined to keep it quiet, to keep the history quiet and to be silent about it. Um, there are white people who understand the value of it um, in Monroe. Um, and there are uh, black and brown folks uh, and people of color who do as well. And I, there, there's a woman in the film who's black who uh, is representative of a certain number of black folks there who feel like it's also racially divisive. Um, I'll say that a lot of the uh, concerns in that area around keeping this history silent was for me a real indicator that a lot of the power dynamics um, of racism are still in place in that area. And so um, it isn't to anyone's benefit um, to talk about it. Interesting. That's interesting. I used to live in Atlanta. Uh, so it, and Monroe, you're right, it's not too far away from Atlanta. So it's interesting that people want to suppress it. I don't think it should be suppressed mm-hmm. uh, at all. Yes. I really don't. Um, I think it is uh, a big, obviously, a part of everyone's history. And yes. um, it is something that needs to be discussed. And so it brings us to present day, where this young man, uh, Lennon Lacey, um, was found. Uh, he was hung, hanging from a swing set, and um, it was deemed a suicide. So, do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Because that that was that was horrific. Uh, you know, for us to think that there's still going on, it's still going on sure. in this world, in the modern day world, even in 1946, um, when this, uh, you know, this when the four people and and the baby. I mean, that's that was you know. Horrific mm-hmm. was going on mm-hmm. to think that, you know, a hundred years, almost a hundred years after the Civil War, that these things at that point were still going on. And today, you know, it's just appalling, actually. Right. Well, well, what's for sure going on is the number of cases of black people like Lennon who've been found hanging publicly. Um, that number is uh, staggering to me. The, the NAACP, uh, the attorney who pulled together the documents um, to give to the NAACP to urge an FBI investigation into Lennon's case. Her name is Heather Radley. And in her research, um, she found that there were 20 similar hanging to Lennon since, since um, 2005. And just in incidental research looking at a um, journalist database, I found that there were um, as many as uh, six to eight times more cases since 2000 of Black people found hanging publicly. And so there's a question about um, what happened, um, because in each of those cases, they've been ruled a suicide. Um, and so on the ground in Blatonboro, Lennon was found on July 29th, 2014, and the police within just a few days came to his family to tell them that that he had committed suicide without um, properly taking the time uh, with the effort 
efforts that the case merit, merited. There were um, contradictions um, in the efforts. I'm, I'm sorry, in the evidence, Lennon was found with shoes that were a size and a half too small for him. That's one of the things um, that were inconsistent in the evidence. And, and also the thing that made, made it clear that this story really was um, really was a part of the narrative that had already been shaping in the years that I'd been filming um, in communities that were dealing with historic lynchings. Um, when I learned how little um, attention or how little credibility, if any at all, that police gave to the racial divisions in that area, and 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 they also showed up without considering this history of lynching terrorism. Um, and the the community had a right for um, that to be considered and for the for the case to be properly investigated. Did did this um, lynching? I mean, you interview a lot of people in in this film, and did you did you think that I, I'm, I am going to call it a lynching because I you know from just watching the film I believe that justice was not done in this case um, and that's just my own personal opinion uh, uh, but do you feel that it, this again created more divisiveness in that community absolutely there there's a, a child um, and a black child quite specifically right which has all kinds of historic connotations um, as you know a black child who's found hanging um, in that area and there are no answers the like um, was what was the case in Monroe um, and what's gone on historically the same in Blatantboro is that the community is left with stories and they're left with rumors and lots of questions that are unanswered and, and so they I don't I'm trying not to give away too much from your movie it's okay. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> that's okay and it wasn't a spoiler by the way about the reenactors so. okay okay um, good yeah. good 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 but because it is sort of surprising when you open it up um yes did obviously justice wasn't done but then you know they and you have this wonderful um there are a lot of people the, the attorney that was there investigating and 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 talks quite a bit about it that is there is there any way of reopening this i mean it, it it's it happened a number now 5 years ago uh, are there do you think this film may open people's eyes and uh reopen the case to look into sure. it more, uh, more deeply sure so claudia fought almost from the very beginning um, quite courageously when I, I, I'm, a, my, I'm a mother and my son was Lennon's age um, when I learned of, uh, of his death and I cannot imagine what that must be like for Claudia. And so for a mother in this situation to move so quickly um, to demanding answers and to leading the fight um, for answers um, is just incredibly courageous and Claudia still continues to fight. Yes. Um, uh, for justice. Um, and the FBI um, held the case open um, and they are currently at the point at which they are saying that if Claudia comes back to them with more information, they'd consider reopening it, it which again puts the onus on the family mm-hmm. to pull together the information um, that really uh, could be done much more thoroughly and efficiently um, and, um, and, and with less of a burden on the family if the FBI or the DOJ were to take that up. Exactly, exactly. But they're refusing to do that or just feel like they've done their job and there's nothing else to do? They do. They, they essentially, um, uh, ruled that there wasn't enough evidence to pursue a homicide investigation and should the family come to them, uh, with further evidence, um, they would look at reopening the case. It's very tragic. It's very, very tragic. You know, that this is still going on in the world today. It just irks me. <laughs> no end. What came first when you decided to do, uh, uh, do this documentary? 
Was it the Lennon Lacey um, case that brought that you decided to? Uh, film this, or was it about the lynching that took place in 1946, or was it just a combination of knowing that lynchings are still going on in this world today? Well, it was all of that, actually. I um, I uh, researched and developed the film for two years, in 2008 and 2009, before I began filming, because I wanted to to understand fully the scope of lynching terrorism, and it's a lot. It's a lot to process about the level of brutality and the pervasiveness um, um, and the impact that is so um, far-reaching into almost every community in this country. Lynchings happened in every state before, so it's not just a Southern issue. Um, it is uh, it is terrorism that has um, that has fallen out for generations all over the country, um, and so I. Once I found that there were people on the ground doing work for justice and reconciliation like the reenactors, I began filming. And the first place I filmed was in Duluth, Minnesota, um, around a quadruple, I'm sorry, around a triple lynching that happened in Duluth in the early 1900s. And I filmed with family members um, of the lynchers. I began filming um, with a man named Warren Reed there first. Um, and so I filmed in eight cities or so um, around the country looking at what folks like Warren were doing to acknowledge the victims and repair the damage and, and to try to lay the groundwork for reconciliation. Um, and thought I was finished filming. I'd filmed in three years with three years in a row with the reenactors um, until July, late July, 2014 and um, was getting ready to wrap production. And also by the way, during that time, during the time I spent from uh, development forward, um, I'd lived in Mississippi. I'd moved back to my home state for about five years um, just prior to that and knew of cases like Lennon. Um, and generally it was young black men and they were generally found hanging by their own belt. And those cases, several of them in the five years that I was there, um, were ruled a suicide. And uh, folks in that community um, were not satisfied with those answers and they got very little information um, from officials. Um, and it, it was those cases were brushed under the rug, similar to Lennon's. And so I knew that this was going on. And when I heard about Lennon's case and started talking to folks on the ground, I realized that his case was the opportunity to frame the narrative in a way that makes it immediate. I had always been looking at the connections between this past and what's going on now. And Lennon's case in showing what it feels like right now on the ground for people still in Blatonboro who are um, reeling from the horror from this nightmare, um, to be able to show that, um, was a, a way to frame, um, the story in Always in Season. Well, it, 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 it does really frame the story. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Jam Price Show all about movies. And my guest today is award-winning director-producer Jacqueline Olive. And we're talking about her brand new documentary, Always in Season. When you, um, one of my other questions was you had incredible archival, uh, footage and photos. H- how difficult was it for you to locate? It wasn't, uh, you know, I, I located most of them during the two years that I spent researching the film. And so most of the image that, images that you see are from the Without Sanctuary Lynching Photography in America um, collection. It's a collection of photographs and postcards um, of 
um, white men, women, and children proudly posing with the bodies, the brutalized bodies of lynching victims. Shocking. Um, those victims were often, yeah, they were often tortured and mutilated over hours as entertainment. And then photographers would set up their camera um, on a tripod in the middle of that and adjust for lighting, adjust for composition, and take photographs of um, folks and sell those um, images to people who came to get a souvenir. Um, and then some of those photographs were, were turned into postcards, and they were so popular. Lynching postcards were at one time that they helped to revitalize um, the postcard industry until they were banned um, in the 1930s. Um, and so um, I... Uh, had been looking at those images. Those are the, that those, the faces of the victims called me to understand their stories better to know more about who they were. Um, and then I, um, so I'd seen them from the very beginning. That's what really called me to make the film. And I, um, uh, after a few months realized that those faces of the spectators could also be my neighbors. They could be my friends. And I, I really wanted to understand about what brought everyone, um, to the point of such um, horrific violence again and again in communities around the country. And did, what did you discover? Um, I discovered a lot of things. I discovered that um, lynching came out of this climate of dehumanization, this climate that um, is, lynching is on a continuum of terrorism. And so there were plenty of other things that were done to brutalize and control the black community before a lynching happened. Um, and, uh, and one of them, one of the things that creates this climate is the use of derogatory terms um, and derogatory images. Um, and it's, um, it, it reminds me today of the language that we have around not just black people, um, uh, the, um, uh, Congresswomen and and um, uh, and folks who are in office, particularly Black women in office now, mm-hmm. um, who are being denigrated. We have uh, folks who are immigrating to this country or who are coming, uh, fleeing for their own safety, um, who are called aliens. Um, these are dehumanizing terms are the very thing that has happened historically. That's been the um, the basis of, of lynching terrorism, and um, and things just escalate from there. Well, you just led me into my next question, and I thank you because I was going to say because of the political climate today, um, and I, you know, again, you started this back in two thousand eight, two thousand and nine, when President Obama, Obama took office, um, and, and I wonder if some things started to escalate around that time because there were a lot of people who were not happy having a black man in the White House. Um, and certainly with the current rhetoric um, from the current person who occupies the White House, um, do you think that's both of those, um, you know, having both of those presidents be back-to-back um, is adding and contributing to what's continuing to go on, and is it making the situation far worse? Yeah, I think I think the, the, the reverse question, rather than whether or not their presidency is contributing, is what is the energy um, and the climate that their presidency came out of. And so uh, the current president, his, his tenure in office comes out of a backlash to the first Black president in the United States, right. and, and they are if you look at them and look at their record, um, then they are night and day in terms of um, their qualifications. Um, and so it is a statement that um, a white male president is preferable any um, to uh, another black president. And that certainly comes out of the fact that uh, Barack Obama was in office um, uh, for two terms. And I, I began before I started uh, looking at lynching 
um, in this way, I began looking at cases of noose incidents. And so noose incidents were um, where people were, black people were threatened by nooses, either um, often left um, on college campuses or um, as, as has been the case in fire departments, um, um, in, fire, in firefighters' lockers as threats. Um, so in um, places of people employment, in their, in their home, um, at colleges and universities, um, those were on the rise uh, right about the time that uh, President Obama um, first started running before he took office the first time wow. the, the, at the beginning of his candidacy. And so there was a spike um, in those cases. And that is not coincidental. Reverend William Barber is in the film. He uh, was the former um, president of the North Carolina NAACP and helped to bring Claudia um, Lennon's case and, and helped Claudia bring it to the FBI um, through that organization. Reverend Barber um, is now founder of the um, the uh, Moral Mondays movement and 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 other movements. But he talks about uh, this country being in the third reconstruction that um, that there was certainly a backlash to pro- to black progress around the first reconstruction um, in the late 1800s and um, and again then again. Um, uh, Jim Crow is out of that, is part of that backlash um, that happened again and that we are in the third period in which there is backlash to the Obama presidency. Um, and so it's a great uh, question. It's important for us to take a look at. And it's the kind of information that we get when we start to look at this history and, and to really um, understand the details. Jacqueline, is my, uh, my last question because we only have a minute or so left to go. How do you think we can begin to heal? I mean, I'm sure that's a question that's been going on forever and ever, but, you know, the country seems to be more divisive than ever. And um, quite honestly, I'd be afraid to be a young black man right now or even a black woman because, of black, you know, it's just yeah, I would I would be afraid, and um, there's no question about it. In today's, and, and no matter where you live in this country, there just seems to be more and more violence against black people in general. I mean, than I than I can remember. I, I, mean, I shouldn't say that, but because I, I, I do remember other times too. But right now, it seems to be more pervasive. Do, what's the conversation we need to have to begin to really heal all of this? I appreciate your question. the 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 first thing, um, the first part of your question is is the is my first answer is that we need more conversation um, that in then differently from other films um, where you have dialogue that leads to action um, the dialogue part of the um, of the solution um, that the film is suggesting is is an action it's an important action to take because there's been so much cover-up and denial around this history is that we need to start to sit down and talk about it um, and to have dialogue so that that in dialogue that is entered on family members of the victims of lynching um, and uh, or other forms of racial violence, but that um, really helps us to understand the details of this history and what we can do for repair. And so um, ideally, the film is a model for what you can do. Claudia's um, courage is a model for the fact that if nothing else, we can stand up and tell the truth about what's gone on historically and now. And the reenactors have creatively uh, creatively come up with a way to tell their truth um, and to bring something to that community. And so there are many things that we can do, big and small, um, and we have the power to make a change. Well, I wish you much success with this film. I know you premiered at Sundance and won uh, an, a, an award there. I think it was an audience award or, or an award there. So 
I wish you much success. Where can people see the movie? Uh, where will it be shown? Or will it Thank be you, on? Dan. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah, absolutely. We screened in about 40 festivals since Sundance, and we just began our theatrical run in New York. Um, by the time this interview airs, we'll be in Atlanta, Georgia, at the Plaza Theater, um, October 4th through the 11th. And then the film will screen in about eight other cities around the country in theaters from D.C. and Detroit and Dallas, New Orleans, Raleigh, Durham, um, all over the country. And we will um, air, the film will broadcast, and we're really excited. It'll be on PBS on the Independent Lens series on February 24th, 2020. That's wonderful. Great. Congratulations. And I wish you, again, much success. And thank you so much, Jacqueline, for being on the show. Thank you, Jan. I appreciate it. On Power Talk AM 1460 and FM 101.1, streaming worldwide on iHeartRadio, Jan Price talks to the movers and shakers in the film business. The Jan Price Show.